Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. The inaugural ADHD Essentials parent coaching groups are about to wrap up, and I'll be announcing the second round next week, so stay tuned. The next round will be a bit longer at eight weeks, and I'll be using that time to add in more material about discipline and compliance, as well as the Wall of Awful. If you haven't already joined, I'd love to invite you to become a part of the ADHD Essentials Facebook group. The link is in the show notes. This is episode 32. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and give us a review in iTunes. Your support goes a long way toward helping others find the show. In fact, feel free to share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or whatever social media platform you prefer. Today, we're talking to Melissa Caraveau. Melissa is a master's level certified special education teacher with almost 25 years of experience, and she's been doing special education consulting for nearly 20 with both school districts and individual families. She was trained through the Federation of Children with Special Needs and through Rights Law. She is both a special education surrogate parent and a parent of a child with special needs. In today's episode, we talk about what a special education advocate is, the services they provide to parents of kids with special learning needs, as well as how to find one and what to do once you have. All right, let's get rolling. An advocate uh, is someone who helps a family uh, sort of navigate the special education system. We can do um, sort of a plethora of services. Uh, Lots of times it's advising parents on what to sign and not sign regarding the special education paperwork and process. We can go with families to team meetings and help them out. He's sort of advocating, obviously, for the child's needs at a team meeting. It's sort of in an ideal world, you have an advocate who has been uh, trained in the special ed laws and regulations of both federal and the state regulations. We sort of help families navigate the process and hopefully keep everything as cordial as possible between families and districts. That part about keeping things as cordial as possible is so huge. I've sat on both ends. I've sat in a special education meeting, I think in every role except for as a parent, and we may or may not get there, but I've been a teacher. I've been the special education teacher, the guy who wrote the IEP. I've been the guidance counselor who wrote the 504. Mm-hmm. And I've done not advocacy work, but sort of consulting work. So I've come in and sat down as a consultant around ADHD stuff, sort of the before the advocate stage, I guess. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's remarkable to me how defensive schools get hmm. when a parent brings in someone who is not in the family, like when they come armed with someone who is knowledgeable, it puts the school back on their heels a little bit. Sometimes. I'll say sometimes to that because I've been in many team meetings where they're grateful that someone is there. Um, Lots of times it depends on how the parent has handled communication in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And a a good advocate can sort of bring everything down to the 
calm <laughs> and um, sort of professional legal type of talk. You know, I always remind parents, this is a legal document that you're, ha- you're signing for your child. It's not really a friendship. It's not us versus them. It's just a contract that you're trying to sign between parties. So um, definitely I've been on both sides, all three, all sides, <laughs> parent, mm-hmm. teacher, um, advocate. If it's a good advocate, uh, I think things can actually improve. Um, if it's an advocate who comes in and automatically has their fist ready to pound the table, that's not going to be good usually. I'm sure you might have seen that now and again too. So I don't mean that the school is back on their heels like they're spoiling for a fight or that they're trying to battle or anything like that. I just mean that it's a different meeting when you roll into a meeting and there's no advocate versus when you do. And a lot of that is because the advocate empowers the parent a little more than parents are otherwise. There's, it's, I've never walked into a meeting as a school staff where there was an advocate that I didn't know was happening in advance and that the conversation wasn't a little bit like, they've got an advocate. And that's all that gets said. Yeah. <laughs> like that speaks volumes. <laughs> yeah. And so, and that's what I mean when I say put the school back on their heels a little bit. And one of the th- reasons I want to point that out to listeners is because, and this came up in the Chandler Creedon episode, I think, a little while back. When you are a parent and you are going into a school to meet with the principal and even just your kid's teacher, most of us are back on our heels when we go into that school. Because we go into the school and we're a kid again. And we feel like we're in trouble when we go <laughs> into the principal's office to meet about our kid or, or a room near the principal's office. Yeah. So it's not, it's not so much that it, having an advocate is something mean or harsh. It kind of just oh, levels yeah. the playing field a little bit because it, yeah. now everybody is going, uh-oh. And then you can move beyond that when you have a good advocate who's like, I just want to make it clear. And even as a sort of a consultant, I do this. I just want to make it clear, I am not here to battle anybody. We're all on the same team. We're all here to help little Mary Sue Uh and get her the support that she needs. So it's great to hear you mention that, that that a a good advocate has kind of put all that at ease. Because hopefully you don't need a combative ad- advocate. If you, no. if you need a combative advocate, something went wrong. Yeah, and it doesn't sy- work. Yeah, either think. systemically with the school or just in that relationship between you and the school. So hopefully we can avoid that. What are some best practices for communicating with the schools to getting ourselves heard, having our kids' needs met and appreciated and respected? What's th- what are some effective ways of getting that ball rolling? First and foremost, even in the most difficult of school situations, I always recommend to families that you go into it assuming (laughs) that um, everyone went into that field for for the right reason. So your teachers, your administrators, they're there because they like kids. They want to help kids. You and I can both attest they didn't go into it for the money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I always say, you know, communicate with your school district in a collaborative manner and just assume that everybody is there for, for the right reasons. If you can go into it with that assumption always in the back of your head, things are much more congenial and ultimately effective. I always like to bring a picture of either my own child or um, if it's my child's IEP or my client's child, you know, put it right there in the center <laughs> of the table. Um, that kind of also immediately puts everybody into the, well, that's right. That's why we're here. We're here because of Johnny. That's a great idea. Yeah. It, it, does, it makes it not about the adults <laughs> at all. It's about that kid on the table. 
And it makes it not about the IEP, which is yeah. just a, a cold piece of paper form mm-hmm. that is the, it's the same form that's getting filled in for every kid. Like right. the words and stuff and the accommodations and things, all of those are different. But the structure of that form is pretty uniform. Mm-hmm. So it gets us out of that, that uniform sort of perspective. So that's, that's awesome. And so then beyond being cooperative and collaborative, right? So you want to be heard. Some of us in this field are known to say, if it isn't in writing, it didn't happen. So my next piece of advice is just get everything in writing. At every meeting, make sure you come away with a copy of meeting notes, which they're they're required to give you by law. I have noticed that that doesn't always happen. You should get those meeting notes. Go home, look at them. If they don't match what you remember from the meeting or what was agreed to, type up your notes send it off to the district. Um, In writing can be emailed, by the way, um, as long as you get some kind of response that they received it. So, um, or if they didn't give you any notes, certainly write those up, send it out, ask for a response. Does this match what you remember? Let it, let me know if there's any discrepancies. When you pass in an item to the school, such as an IEP that you've signed or request for an independent evaluation or anything that you're passing into the school, get a receipt. I think some parents very much hesitate getting that receipt. But I always say, you know, you go to Target and you ask for a receipt. Nobody gets, you know, feels bad about giving you a receipt. Um, I've worked in the district. We do not feel any way about giving you a receipt. It's okay. We have received this. Thank you very much. So go ahead and ask for that receipt. They're used to that. Or at least send an email off and say, just want to make sure that you receive the IEP. We're all set and get some kind of response. Uh, Lots of times, not lots of times, but sometimes a school district will call you on the phone. Um, keep in mind, if it's not written, it didn't happen. So um, after a phone call from the district, if, if there's anything that might have gotten decided or promised or we're going to try out such and such, get, uh, send it off in an email <laughs> once again and just say, oh, this is, thank you for our call. I just want to you know, summarize what we talked about. Another piece of advice about getting yourself heard is uh, keep it child-centered. So um, sometimes we hear parents say, well, I need a communication log and I need to be able to observe and I need this, I need that. The, the IEP or any kind of plan, 504 plan, is centered around the kid. It's always about the kid. And you can get those same things, but just rephrase it and it, it's a better communication tool. So um, Johnny doesn't generalize skills to home very well. So if we have a home log, that means that I can use the prompts and the cues that you're using at school so he can generalize better. So he needs this. So that's always uh, more helpful to keep it child-centered. An area where I see this a lot is around homework, Uh right? Like I have a lot of parents who say, I need an agenda. I need the homework to be updated on the website. Oh, yes. I need to know what my kid's homework is because my kid often doesn't know what the homework is. Right. Or he might even be, or she might even be trying to sneak one past me and right. not do as much homework. <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's really compelling to me, rephrasing that around Johnny doesn't always know what the homework is. So can we set up a homework log? Can we do something to ensure that the homework is updated on the website regularly? Because sometimes when we've gone to look at it, it doesn't look like it was updated that day or that week or whatever the case may be. Phrasing that in terms of Johnny struggles with remembering the homework. Yep. We need support yep. at home to make sure that we know how to best support him in that. Right. Where to point him to to find that homework. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, 
I talk about all the time with my clients, but keep the emotions out of it <laughs> um, makes it more effective when you're communicating with schools. And I don't mean um, crying. I bring the tissues to my own child's IEP meeting. Crying is normal, <laughs> happens, don't feel bad about that. But when that emotion turns to yelling, screaming, accusing, then it becomes completely ineffective, right? So, uh, oh, another one I've seen sometimes is uh, families using social media to talk about how such and such a meeting didn't go well or such and such administrator isn't great or that type of thing. Just, you know, be really careful. Just keep it cordial. I always say, even if a, a case goes all the way to hearing, which is very, very rare, by the way, but if it does, it's not like you're suing a business and you never have to step foot into Target again because you've sued them. You are suing a person that you're going to have to see again every single year at least, if not several times per year. So your kid is 18, 22, whatever. So it's a little bit different in that you do kind of have to keep it as, as cordial and friendly as you possibly can. So if you can't be calm in a meeting, uh, bring an advocate or professional or a friend or spouse or someone with you who can help do that. Um, I think families forget too that they have a right at any time to terminate a team meeting. So if they're feeling intimidated or things aren't feeling right at all, they can terminate the meeting. And what that means is that the team cannot continue without them. They can't keep having that team meeting just because you're not there. You've terminated that meeting and it will be rescheduled. So that's always something you can do. There's a subtext here that I want to point out for our listeners, which is you're a good parent. Huh. You're not in an IEP meeting or a 504 meeting because the school administration or teachers or staff are saying you're an awful parent and that's why your kid needs these accommodations. There's right. no scenario where that's happening. Right. And I bring that up because just like I've seen schools get back on their heels a little bit about an advocate, I've also seen plenty of parents come into a school meeting feeling very defensive because they feel like they're being judged when that's not at all what's happening. I've never, ever in my time as a teacher or a guidance counselor or a special ed worker or anything seen school staff where they're judging the parents as having failed at no. parenting. That's yeah. not a thing that happens. Right. Not even behind closed doors. Right. And so if you're feeling defensive, try to let some of that go. Just thinking back to what, uh, one specific parent that I worked with. One of the things that I noticed about why she was struggling going into the, in this case, it was a 504 meeting, was because she hadn't mourned the kid that she didn't have. As parents, we expect our kids to come out in a certain way. And we expect our kids to kind of follow a certain trajectory. We have that imaginary kid before the baby is born. Yes. And then the baby is born and we have whatever that baby is. And eventually we might find out that that baby is not what we were hoping it would be. And sometimes it's a really significant shift and the morning happens right away. Like, oh, my kid has Down syndrome. Like that's significant enough. You're probably going to start to deal with that pretty quickly. But with something like ADHD, it's such a small difference initially. It's like sailing on a ship. If you're off by a quarter of a degree, you're going to wind up in a different place than you plan to go. I saw my kid as a doctor or a lawyer, right. and now I'm like, okay, legal assistant, dental hygienist. We're just <laughs> going in a different direction. And that can be hard for parents. And that can come into your meeting with your 
with your school staff. So that's that's stuff we want to let go. I always tell parents too, similar regard is that, you know, there's a discussion happening at, happening at a team meeting and that's all it is. Nothing should, this is my side note, get signed at a time at a team meeting ever. Don't ever sign anything at the team meeting. Um, I, bring it home, digest it. You always have some time, always. <laughs> Even if you just want to, uh, listen, I want to take a look at this. I want my spouse to look at it. I want my advocate or clinician to look at this. I'll sign it tomorrow. And why I say that is because I think people think I've got to convince everybody right here at this team meeting that this is my position and this is, this is where we're going to go. And sometimes you, you can't verbally at a meeting convince anybody of anything. And so to terminate the meeting or to take home your notes and respond in writing, I do a lot of help with families with that because your legal response is your signature. And that's where the real negotiation and, and the, the signing, that's the legalese. That what's happening in the team meeting is just a discussion. And just from the school side, you might get a little pressure from the school side to sign that document. It's not because they're trying to take advantage of you. It's because when that document goes home, everything gets so much harder bureaucracy-wise for the school. It's just all of a sudden there's more variables, there's stuff to track down. They're not trying to take advantage of you. They're not trying to put your kid at a, at a disadvantage or anything like that. They're just going, this has to happen on a timetable. We want to make sure we're getting this kid the support they need. We have to make sure that this document comes in in a time frame that will allow us to provide the support that we need. Things are maybe going to change, maybe not going to change based on that document. So you might get a little pressure from the school. Just understand where that's coming from. It's coming from a place of their own personal anxiety around having their T's crossed and their I's yes. dotted. It's okay. not coming from a place of, we really want to take advantage of you and not provide you with the services that you need. That's not right. what's happening. Right. Um, I think I said before, don't assume your friends um, is another when communicating with schools. Some people are uh, sort of shocked that uh, that their favorite teacher suddenly sided with the district um, at, a, at, a, at the table. That I've heard that before. Or they're surprised when the school personnel doesn't want to provide any service or, or, they, or they act inappropriately. So I say keep your side of it professional. Think of it as a meeting. And the last thing I was thinking of uh, for uh, getting yourself heard districts well they probably don't love it when i say this but i've noticed that a lot of the districts are doing away with what we used to call when i was a teacher uh sort of the transition meeting so your child is going to a new grade obviously or a new school especially uh and we used to have the teach the new teacher meet with the old teacher and the speech pathologist and whoever is on your child's team so you'd have a spring transition meeting before the next year and you talk about how things are going to be great and what the child needs and sort of fill in that new specialist and I've noticed a lot of school districts don't do that anymore. So even for my own child, I've been doing this for years. Right about this time of year, <laughs> I send out a little note once I find out who that teacher is or who that provider is. I just says, hey, hey, um, I was wondering if you wanted to meet with me for a few minutes briefly. That's key. Um, and informally, not a team meeting, just, you know, so you can hear about my kid. And if you have any questions for me, just kind of go over your kid. And it's sort of your own informal transition meeting so that you can communicate with this teacher what do they need to know? I bring a copy of the accommodations page usually and highlight two or three things that that teacher's going to know or need to know for the beginning of the year. Don't assume that teacher has that IEP yet, <laughs> um, unfortunately. So um, I always try to do that. And I have never met a teacher who has not appreciated and wanted that little meeting just before the beginning of school. So um, mm -hmm. that's something that can help in the communication realm as well. Two pieces of that that I want to dig around in a little bit. 
One is you just said like, don't assume that parent has already seen that IEP. And you said that very offhandedly because you're so steeped in school culture that you know that's how it works. My guess is that most of the people listening didn't know that. Interesting. It makes sense, right? Well, the school has the IEP. Yes. So my teacher must have access to that IEP. And that is not the case because IEPs are confidential documents. So a teacher doesn't have access to that IEP until they get permission to have access to that IEP or 504 for that matter. Just because it's the summer before your kid has this teacher and you already know who the teacher is, that doesn't mean they've been given those legal binding documents yet. Often we don't get them as teachers until the day school starts. Or after. Sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> yeah, sometimes even yeah. after that, it depends on the level of organization, not necessarily for the school, but sometimes the level of organization for that individual special education teacher, guidance counselor, and also the hundreds of thousands of other things that they often have, often also have to do. And the fact is an IEP and a 504 kind of can wait a couple days if it needs to, because those early days of school are so generic in terms of getting to know each other and establishing basic classroom norms and rules that we're not jumping into the learning yet. Right. And so we can kind of, sometimes that stuff doesn't happen until the team meeting for the teachers, which is always going to be on a Thursday and school started on a Tuesday. So you're just getting those forms on Thursday because that's when that meeting is scheduled. And that's the, it's always going to be Thursday at 1230. So we just have to wait until we get to Thursday. Right. And then the second thing I wanted to poke around in was you mentioned parents setting up a meeting with the teachers to kind of be like, this is my kid. What are your thoughts on writing a letter or an email or both? That would be my second choice. You can start off on a sort of a better, more cordial and open relationship, I think, if you do something face-to-face right away. When you put it in an email or in writing, then it becomes official. And it might, not always, but it might scare off the teacher a little bit. Like, I have to take everything is kept, anything that you write to the school is kept in, in a file. So the second you send an email, the second that you send a letter, that's an official part of your child's records at that point. So I think maybe if they refuse the meeting for whatever reason, but again, I've never heard of a teacher refusing that sort of informal meeting. Sometimes it happens the first or second week of school, the parent and the teacher says, well, let me, let me get to know Johnny a little bit better. And then um, that'd be great. But I I think writing the letter becomes more formal. and, And if you do need sort of to lay it out like that, you might be better off calling a team meeting to make because it's going to be official either way. Now, I'm not necessarily thinking about it in terms of laying it out in a letter like that. Okay. I'm thinking more along the lines of like, dear Mrs. Beauregard, this is Johnny. Johnny is a big fan of Jurassic Park and Minecraft. Yeah. And he loved, loved going camping with our family over the summer. Okay. Johnny has ADHD. I just want to let you know. Sometimes he can be a little disruptive in class. If you notice that Johnny is talking to his neighbor more than he ordinarily should be, in the past, we have seen success with giving him a job to walk around the school or letting him stand up at the back of the room or whatever sort of stuff has happened in the past. Please don't hesitate to contact me. Yeah. Should there be any issues that I need to be aware of, I would prefer that you contact me early and we find out that the problem is not really a problem, mm-hmm. then that you contact me later and the problem is bigger because Johnny generally is able to manage things easily, more easily when we hit them sooner rather than later. 
I really am looking forward to having a great year with you. I've heard all sorts of wonderful things about your social studies units or whatever the case may be. Thank you for taking the time to read this letter. Sincerely, Mr. and Mrs. Yakety Schmackety. You're a great letter writer, first of all, <laughs> um, off the top of your head. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, personally, as a teacher, I would not mind at all receiving something like that. You've kept it cordial. You've kept it nice and helpful. It's not demanding or asking anything over the top specific. Yeah, I, mean, I think that that is fine. And it's certainly if you can't make it into the school when said teacher might be setting up their classroom, for example, then that's a great way to, to start a good relationship with that provider. Cool. And, and there's also that subtext because I, the point of this podcast is for parents. So I, sometimes I feel like I come across like I'm in opposition to schools and I'm completely not. I just, it's for the parents. If it was for teachers, it'd be a very different podcast. Right. Yep. But one of the other things that a letter like that does is the subtext of it. That teacher is now going to go, oh, this parent, this kid needs to is stay involved. top of mind right? They're, yep. they're involved. This kid needs to be top of mind. Let me make sure I recognize who he is. And I'm going to get to know your kid a lot faster. Yep. Six of one, half dozen of the other, right? If your kid is a little disruptive, I might be more aware of that disruption. And so now I might be like, oh man, that kid drives me crazy after a month of school. Whereas before he might've coasted under the radar for two months. On the other hand, if the kid needs support, I might be like, I'm supporting this kid sooner. And as a result, the kid is getting more support because they usually when the kid needs support, they could also coast under the radar for two months or three, even depending on how subtle that kid's support is. Right. So we're bringing them top of mind. And that's another advantage to writing a friendly letter. So I mentioned sort of in the context of that letter, we find that, that our son, when he gets a little chatty with his neighbors, taking a walk is useful. Staying in the back of the classroom is useful. Um, when you're working with your ADHD clients, what are the typical accommodations that you're pushing for? Well, when talking about help in school, um, I think it's important to think about the sort of two major ways or categories in which students can be assisted in schools, right? So there can be accommodations and there can be services. Uh, and depending on what the child needs depends on which type of plan that they might have at school. So I'm just read you the legal definition of accommodations are supports and services provided to help a student access the general education curriculum and validly demonstrate learning. Um, so an, an example of accommodation would be, you know, extended time in order to finish an assignment or take a test. A service would be um, any type of special ed or related service that a child might need in order to make effective progress in education. So a service is your special educator and OTPT speech, that type of any personnel that has to come in and sort of provide some, a service to that child. An accommodation is what you can do in the regular education classroom, manipulating that environment, manipulating how things are presented to the kid in mm -hmm. order for them to make progress. Whereas a service is that you're receiving some type of service either directly or indirectly by a special education or related service provider. So a service is a person in some way, yeah, right. Um, yeah, although in a regular, uh, some, some classes still do have them, you know, just a gen ed uh, paraprofessional. Um, mm. So if a gen ed paraprofessional could make it so that the groupings are small enough for your student, that's an accommodation for that kid, not a service for that kid, because the gen ed paraprofessional is not being supervised by a special educator and they're not manipulating the content of what the kid is learning. Okay. So uh, if the 
if the child can succeed in school with just accommodations, um, and they have a diagnosis, of course, they're eligible for a 504 plan. So only accommodations equals 504. If the child needs specialized services, um, instead of or in addition to those accommodations, they're eligible for the IEP. And as a side note here, I always, if there's any chance at all that your child needs an IEP, get the IEP. There are more procedural safeguards for both you and the child in an IEP. There's a lot more laws and regulations about that. So sort of my little soapbox is, if it's truly that your child needs some kind of service, sometimes a kid, especially kids with ADHD or anxiety um, type of disorders, schools sometimes tend to say, well, let's try the 504 first and see how that goes. And as a special educator, I would say, okay, we can accommodate the child's needs. For example, if they have um, an organizational issue, executive function, we can accommodate that. We can give them graphic organizers. We can give them color-coded this, that, or the other thing. But as a teacher, I would say, yeah, but we could also teach them how to color code. We could teach them how to self-regulate, how to you know, organize themselves, break down a large assignment. And that needs to be taught. And usually that's taught by a special educator, a school psychologist, or someone who can teach them. So I would say a 504 for a kid who truly just needs a very small amount of simple accommodations. And if that works, that's great. If we're accommodating too much, and it's something we can literally teach them, we can't teach, um, if you have diabetes in a 504 and you need certain medications and certain monitoring, we can't teach the un undoing of that, right? So, but... <laughs> I'm just going to teach you how to make more insulin. Right. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if it is something like organizing or self-regulating or having the appropriate social skills, as a teacher, I could say, I, I can teach that. Um, so I would try to get the IEP for that reason. That's just my side note. Otherwise, I mean, you had mentioned sort of who, what do we push for with ADHD clients. Of course, it's all individual. It's an individualized education plan. Um, but I can tell you some of the common ones that we see in my students' education plans. Uh, preferential seating. And I always tell parents and teams, please define that. Because preferential seating could be the front of the room. But if your teacher always teaches from the side of the room or the back of the room where they're constantly flowing around the room, that may not help your student. So maybe that that specialized seating is away from the door or mm. close proximity to the teacher. That's better than front of the room. I had a kid, ADHD kid, back when I taught English. He was in the front of the room and he knew everybody was behind him and could see him. So this kid was calling out like crazy <laughs> and he was on stage and I put him in the back of the room. I put him in the back left corner and I left him there for the rest of the year. And I picked up on this in like the first two weeks of school. I was like, right. this is why he's doing that. Shoved him in the back of the room and he was great Yeah. because he didn't call out. But when he raised his hand and everyone turned and looked at him, then he got to be on stage. So the stuff he shared was really on point and really insightful. But when he, everyone was looking away from him and paying attention to the front of the room, he didn't feel the same pressure. So he was only getting that pressure when he was called on. He wasn't getting it otherwise. Right. It was one of the most eye-opening experience that I've had as a teacher. And it right. happened fairly early in my career. And I was like, wait a minute, this is a thing. And preferential seating changed in my head from then on. Yeah. And it could be total, that, that seating arrangement could backfire for the type of kid who's trying to hide and never answer anything, right? So they might need to be sort of more in the middle or next to an appropriate peer. Um, some kids that might actually be away from the center of activity, they do better. So really define what that preferential seating is 
adaptive equipment can help kids with um, ADHD. So I've seen kids with seat cushions, standing desks, um, resistant spans on chair legs to sort of satisfy that need to move around, improve focus. Organizational accommodations, we talked about uh, maybe an extra set of textbooks or a digital copy of textbooks for home, providing extra copies of the notes for tests, study guides, um, extra time. Kids love this one, but <laughs> um, limiting or reducing the homework if it's a struggle. This is the teacher and me coming out again, but I always like to remind parents and teams that homework is to practice independently practice learned skills. It's not for additional teaching. There's not a teacher there at home. It's really a time for the child to practice what they independently know. So if they require a service at school or a person or any kind of modification at home for math, and they're taking home the same math homework as everybody else, that's just a struggle. And what you are going to see is the kid who tantrums, cries, gives the parents a hard time about homework, etc. Um, so either reducing the amount of homework or totally changing it up can be very helpful to a kid. Same amount of time, say it's 30 minutes for your third grader, but they're working on the skills that they're working on. Or if academics isn't really a need, maybe they're working on something that they learned in speech and language. You know, we've talked about you starting a conversation three times. I want you to document those three times that you did at home and come back to me and tell me about it tomorrow. A very different homework, but it's something that they need to be working on and it makes it far more meaningful than mom and dad. I have families who struggle for hours to, to keep up, to you know, make sure that the social studies um, project is done and it's just not meaningful homework. One small caveat to homework being sort of self-reinforcement, self-directed reinforcement of what was taught in class. The only exception to that is the flipped classroom where it actually is instruction. I interviewed a woman named Danielle Stasa who has done that. She's an English teacher. Yep. And her kids for homework watch instructional videos yeah, and might great. do something like a worksheet or something to reinforce that while they're watching it. But it's yep. all timed very carefully. Yep. Um, they're like eight minutes long. And then they apply that stuff in class yep. so that she can see how well they're understanding what they're learning and can reteach and reinforce as necessary. Right. If your kid is at home watching videos, there might be some flipped classroom <laughs> stuff happening. I don't want, yeah. I just don't want parents to be like, this shouldn't happen and be bothered by it. Particularly yeah. as your kids get to higher and higher grades, you yeah. might find that that's happening, yeah. but it may be intentional and just talk to your teacher about what, what the plan is. Right. But how meaningful is that? It's so much more meaningful than some of the other types of homework. You know, traditional homework is here's your pile, get it done by tomorrow. Right. Um, in fact, they are learning and ideally doing that video watching in their worksheet on their own, um, you know, it's with as little need for the parent to be involved in it for it to get stressful. Um, and then the last accommodations I was thinking of, um, obviously behavior can come into play with kids with ADHD. So some kind of behavior plan, a movement break, timers, having the kid run errands. Um, I used to have special, uh, you know, secret signals to get my chat, my students' attention. Um, at the really meaningful time, you know, ta a quiet tap on the shoulder when I'm going to say something super important. Um, but those are some, you know, accommodations that any that can happen in any classroom. So, I'm a parent. My kid has ADHD. My kid has audio processing disorder. My kid has a touch of autism, maybe. And I'm feeling starting to feel a little nervous. I'm like, I think I might have to. I might need to go for the 504 of the IEP because it's been one of those summers and last year was one of those years. <laughs> How do I find an advocate? 
there's a few different ways that you can find an advocate, but the, the best one I think we would all say is a referral from someone that you trust. So network with some children, um, parents of children with special needs. Everyone has a local CPAC. Find out if anybody has worked with a, an advocate locally they've had success with or they've heard one speak somewhere. Sometimes parents go to their own neuropsychologist or an outside provider. Sometimes they've talked to an attorney already and then the attorney will say, there's a lot of pre-work you can do for this and hopefully you never get to a hearing. So here's the list, you know, a few advocate names that you could call upon. So most of us work on those referrals. Some advocates do pay some membership fees to advertise their names. Places like uh, COPA, which is the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates. Uh, SPAN is on online, Rights Law is online. But I always tell people to you know, keep in mind there are, unfortunately, aren't any minimum requirements or certification yet for advocates. So I would say read those more as sort of a yellow pages kind of listing as opposed to them promoting anyone because of their um, experience. I know personally, I try not to put my name on too many of those lists because um, it's actually a really bad feeling when you get a lot of calls in and then you have to say, I'm sorry, I'm full. I, I can't you know, take your case. There's a wait list. Um, so some of us, even though if you don't see their name on those lists, it doesn't mean they're not being promoted. It just means they haven't paid money to advertise on those lists. Then they're just sticking with straight referrals. Every state has a, a parent um, information center of some sort for special education. People's names that those centers provide um, have met a minimum at least of, of completing their state's parent consulting um, training institute. So they're a good place to go. You can look up cases online for how an advocate did at a hearing. Sometimes that one's best used for when things don't go too well. <laughs> so if you see a name um, and the, the advocate was adversarial, um, so, you know, it was in a hearing and things didn't go well, you can sometimes find um, those names and kind of weed people out. And finally, look for their credentials. So once you have a few names, positive signs would be if that person has been a teacher of some sort, special educator, number of years experience, obviously. So uh, like I said, anyone can call themselves an advocate. Some of some people get into advocacy because their child has a certain special need. Unfortunately, sometimes it's because they had a terrible experience with their district. So it's, it's become their mission to uh, fight back. <laughs> um, and you, I've seen these types of advocates. That's not usually helpful uh, for the reasons we talked about before. But at minimum, your advocate should have been trained somewhere on the federal and state regulations um, in special education and ideally have some experience um, with your child's disability and situation. And what, as an advocate, do you need from your clients? There's things that we need very firsthand. There's some paperwork that we need a lot. And then once the person is my client, there are things that I need them as a, to do as a client. So I'll just start at the beginning. So at the beginning, um, usually most advocates will have some type of initial consultation. They'll get an overview of your child and the situation. You let them know what um, the advocate will let you know what their background and services are. You go over a contract. I strongly suggest that you get into a written contract with someone. It gives you as the advocate permissions to speak to doctors in the school district and to, to speak on behalf of the parent if the parent wants that to happen. Um, so if there's an agreement, you sign a contract and most of us take some type, type of retainer, just a um, certain number of hours to start and you get into that agreement. Once you have that agreement, there's a lot of paperwork that your advocate is going to need from you. So <laughs> My whole audience we just went... What? Uh, a lot yeah. of paperwork? <laughs> well, Brendan, what are you doing to us? <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it should be paperwork that you have already. I mean, I strongly suggest to everyone that you document, document, document everything. We talked about that before. So um, 
we'd be looking for your present and prior IEPs if they have them, report cards, progress reports, um, evaluations, behavior intervention program reports if you have those. Um, copies of email communications, keep those. Uh, we like to see what the conversation has already been written, the legal conversations um, with the district, maybe some early intervention paperwork if the child is young. So we need a lot of paperwork there, but if you keep big fat finder <laughs> of your kid, if you haven't done that already, you should start immediately and just keep a copy of everything. And then once a person is my client, the number one, same with school districts, communication. Communication is absolute key between client and advocate. Uh, we'll work collaboratively together. You would be the expert of your child, obviously, and I'm the expert in the law and the IEP uh, process, and really one can't work well without the other. Uh, listen to our advice. If we, example, if we ask you to get a receipt for handing something in or we show, or show us something before you sign it, that's a big one, uh, sign something with specific language, we have reasons. So if you don't understand what those reasons are, communicate, you know, ask us why. We definitely need uh, the clients to, to listen to us as much as possible to make the process easier. I personally, my style is to teach parents to advocate themselves for their children eventually, to understand the laws and their rights so that eventually I can fade out. That said, when things get too emotional and you need us to, to, we always have your child's best interest in mind, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So if you need us to talk for you, let us know. We can do that for you. CC us on everything. <laughs> um, email and paper copying. No communication with the district or any evaluators is unimportant. So send us everything. Keep everything. Meet deadlines. So if we say, okay, you, we have to get this signed within the next 30 days, I'm going to remind you about that next 30 days. It's so super important for a good advocate and client working relationship that those deadlines get met because I can help you in the end um, if it were ever to go to mediation or hearing if we kept those timelines that we need to keep on our side. Uh, be respectful in your emails and at meetings with school personnel. Sometimes you're having a great conversation with me as the advocate and then the next day something happens and the parent uh, sends out a nasty email to a teacher that something happens and that can really backfire the whole process. So keep professional and respectful to the, the district. And if you think it's sticky, send it to us send it to me first and I'll look it over and, and edit it <laughs> before you send out what you want to say. And, and parents don't send any emails after seven o'clock at night. Yeah. Just don't. Or if you feel anything yeah. <laughs> sad, angry, emotional right. about anything, wait before you hit send. Yeah. And, and maybe don't send anything before like nine 30 in the morning. Yeah. Cause yeah. well, if, if the kids are still around, you don't want to well, send anything. Not just that, but like, <laughs> If you are a person with ADHD and your medication hasn't kicked in yet, ah. you might be being more impulsive than thoughtful that early in the morning. Gotcha. So, um, And the last thing I would say about what we need is um, for you to have realistic expectations. So a good advocate is going to be honest with you about your situation and your chances of getting a particular service. Unfortunately, what's ideal is not always guaranteed. So your advocate will help you sort out what can be expected and and help your child receive what the law guarantees, not necessarily what used to be, at least here, with maximum feasible benefit, unfortunately, doesn't exist anymore. So, But we do know the laws and what you can expect, and we'll help you through that. But be realistic. Listen, if we say that's likely not going to happen, then be realistic about that. Sort of like negotiating a car. You might not get your best price. Right. What's the range? Like, yeah. at what point are you walking away? 
it's definitely a negotiation process. Just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials for my audience around how to get an advocate, around what to look for in an advocate, around um, best practices for communicating with schools so you don't have to go to an advocate? My overall advice is to communicate and communicate in a respectful manner. Um, we talked a lot about that. And, you know, if you need help, a lot of people think that they need to get an advocate only when things are bad or only, I work with a lot of clients who I never even go into the team meeting. I'm just advising them on what they should ask for, how they should ask for it, advising them on whether or not they should sign something or how could they revise it. Um, it's not adversarial. And actually I would say, I'm not sure I have any adversarial, well, one, <laughs> at relationships right now with any district and parent. You know, my job is to make sure that it doesn't get adversarial and that it doesn't stay that way. So definitely think of an advocate more sort of as a, a special education and a law expert um, who can help you navigate a pretty confusing process. Um, and the other thing I was thinking of that we didn't talk about too much, you know, things that parents can do is um, evaluations. I think it's important to remember when we talk about what services your child is going to get, the evaluations from your school district have to happen, but just by nature of them, they're automatically biased, right? So you're getting evaluations from a team of teachers who are uh, going to ultimately make a recommendation for what services your child should get. <laughs> so that's a, a biased relationship automatically. I always recommend to every family that they, they, if they can do it, because they are expensive, you get a neuropsychological evaluation. Those are very thorough. They are unbiased. So the evaluator has no reason to say to you, uh, you know, Johnny needs X, Y, and Z. They're not going to get anything out of it, or they're not going to not recommend something because there isn't enough money in the budget. They're going to give you a good roadmap, at least for a couple of years, of here would be the best situation that you can expect for your child. Here's the delays that I'm seeing and how to remediate it. And I always recommend that if you can do that, a good compelling neuropsychological eval is worth every penny and can really help the future uh, if your case were ever to go to hearing or any type of thing that it's hearings always come down to evidence, my evidence versus their evidence. Um, you need to have your own set. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.